It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder, pastor, North Shore Vineyard. Today on the podcast, we have part two of our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is entitled, Jesus, the Glory of God. In today's teaching, we are looking at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, verses that discuss the incarnation of Jesus Christ, really some of the most important verses in the whole of the New Testament. We're going to seek to understand what these verses might have meant to those in the first century and then try to figure out what they mean to us today. And as you will find, it's very good news indeed. And don't forget, you can visit our website, northshorevineyard.org, for all things North Shore Vineyard, all the activities we're carrying on with as a church, events coming up, as well as blog posts and more audio uh, for any weeks that you've missed. All right, let's head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Hello? Hello. What is there, like a like an important game or something today? <laughs> Paul, would, would you mind shutting those blinds a little bit? It's, it's, it's blinding me. Yeah, thank you. Yes. I want to read the, the text for this morning. It is, we're, we're in a series that we just started last week, and we will probably be in it for another year and a half or so uh, at the rate that we go through the Bible around here. So, um. This is part two, <laughs> and the text this morning is John 1, 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, by the way, just, just before we go on, this is John the Baptist that he's talking here, not John the, the Gospel of John guy, so just so you know that. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that, all through, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of His fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Man, it, it doesn't get much better in the Bible than this. This is like, this is, this is good. Uh, we could just read that and go home today, but I will do a little teaching on it. <laughs> Make my job easier. I'm, let's, let's just go tailgate. Uh, <laughs> Years ago, when I was a, a, a young Christian living over in Hammond, Louisiana, I happened to start working with a college ministry that was over at SLU called uh, Chi Alpha, and 
initially I came over there just to, to lead worship because they needed somebody to do that. And I was like, I, I felt called into ministry. I was pretty new in the faith, but I, I could play guitar. So I got out there and started leading worship. Well, after, you know, about six months of leading worship there, the, the guy who was the pastor who'd been there for years resigned. And then they sent another guy out there uh, to, to from, from the church I was at at the time to, to pastor the thing. So everything was going good. And then then they called him back to the main church, and they, they said, can you pastor this thing? And I'm like, well, sure, I'll give it a shot. And uh, uh, So here I was pastoring a college ministry as, you know, about a Christian of three years and trying to pastor college students, but I wasn't in college. And for some reason, at one point, it occurred to me that if I'm going to speak into the life of college students, if I'm going to reach college students with the message of Jesus, then perhaps... Maybe I ought to try college out. <laughs> now, I, I didn't have much use for college because, you know, when I was in high school, you know, I just kind of wanted to be a rock and roll guy. So I kind of thought, you know, pfft, I mean, you know, the, the Steven Tyler, did, did he get a degree or Bono or any of these guys, you know? I mean, no. I mean, a lot of them were college dropouts or, or, or high school dropouts. So I thought, you know, what, did, what needed I have for college? But it occurred to me that it might be wise to go ahead and start going to college. So I went to college not really wanting to get a degree so much as wanting to reach people who were college students. And it was a, it was a, it was a simple thing. But you know what? By going to college it changed the way that I view college students because now for the first time in my Christian life, I was having to wrestle with the same things that college students were wrestling with. I had to, I had to be in an environment that was not hospitable to faith. I had to be in classes on philosophy and science and literature that, that, you know, by teachers that, that weren't real hip on the whole Bible thing or, or Jesus Christ. And it changed the way that I spoke to college students because I had stepped into their world. I became one of them. Uh, another thing that happened around that time was I, I got married to my wife, Dina, here. Dina? You don't want to wave your hand. Yeah, Dina loves it when I... Uh, no. <laughs> Stand up, take a bow. Uh, uh, at the time, me and Dina started dating right, you know, shortly after I'd become the campus pastor there. And uh, at that time, I had been in ministry a, a few years, and I quite frequently listened to Christian radio, so I listened to programs like Family Life Today and James Dobson, people that talk a lot about family things and marriages and how to have a better marriage, and sometimes they would even recommend books on marriage, and I would go buy them as a young single guy thinking, you know, I want to know what it takes to be married, but once I got married, it really it only took about a couple of weeks, I realized that I could throw all that stuff out the window. <laughs> my, my elaborate prayer life, you know, see, I, I just thought, well, it's, it's easy enough. I love her. She loves me. We love God. I mean, I read about communication. How hard can this thing actually be? You know, I mean, we'll be, if anything, I was looking at it very like pragmatically, like, you know, I mean, two people helping with the writ, it should be, you know, it should be easier, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's how a lot of guys get tricked into this thing, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But I realized very quickly that it, there was a lot more to it than that. Somebody take that shovel. Take that shovel, yeah. Just going to keep digging. <laughs> I realized there was a lot more to it than that. I realized that being married was going was to be a lot of work. That, that this, this little aspect of communication, it, it, I was going to spend the rest of my life figuring out how to do it. 
And I still haven't got the, the, the certificate yet. <laughs> but I tell you, as a pastor now, when I meet with people who are married, I've got a lot more understanding because I'm married. <laughs> My knowledge isn't theoretical anymore. I've stepped into the world of married people, and now I, I, I'm not so quick to give my opinion on it. I remember before I first got married, actually, it was funny, when I had my band for a while, we, it was like a bad reality show if we would ever had a camera because there was the four guys in my band and my sound guy and all of our wives loaded into, and, and Tevia, my daughter, who was like three, three years old at the time and the most mature of us on long trips as well. And uh, we would load up into this 15-passenger van and do these tours out to California and stuff. And our, the only guy that wasn't married in our group was our sound guy. And he was dating. And, and he would just give us all advice on marriage. <laughs> and we were like, oh, you, you just wait. You just wait. And uh, sure enough, uh, he, he found out that, just like I did, that maybe all the things he thought he knew about marriage, he didn't really know. There's one other thing I want to share that... Or, or, in my Christian journey, I have been on many short-term missions trips. And I, I got to say, if you've never been on a trip out of the country on a missions trip, do it. I think it, it, it would anybody can benefit from this, whether it's just a week or a month or whatever. Get out of America and go uh, step into the world of other people. I got to tell you, that was an amazing thing in my life. But I found, you know, even though I've been on many short-term missions trips, I've really found a, a great respect for folks who give up everything in America to go as missionaries overseas. I got a friend of mine, Scotty Meads, who years ago decided to be a missionary in India. And Scotty, for the first five years, because you, you know you can actually be a missionary in a foreign field without really embracing the culture. And my friend Scotty, that was kind of his approach initially, was just trying to talk people into becoming Christians, whether they were Hindus or Buddhists or Sikhs uh, or, or, or Muslim followers and he didn't get very far with that in the first five years. He had a similar epiphany that I had when I was in college ministry. He thought, maybe instead of trying to get them to step into my very Americanized version of Christianity, maybe I ought to step into their world. So you know what Scotty began doing? He started going and hanging out at the local Sikh temple. Sikhs, or S-I-H-K, I think, uh, it's a religion, you can look it up, but he went and started hanging out with these guys, started talking to them. He bought their holy book and just started reading it. You know, what's, what's this all about? Scotty ended up building relationships with these people, and then he started finding inroads where he could share Jesus, but he did it by stepping into their world. That was a pivotal moment, and he's still a missionary. Now he's been a missionary in Thailand, Cyprus. He's planted small communities in, in areas that are hostile to Christianity. He's planted churches among Muslims, churches among uh, Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs. But how did he do it? By stepping into their world, by meeting them right where they're at. Probably one of the greatest examples we could see of this would be somebody like Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa gave up all of the comforts of, of American life to go live with the people in, in Calcutta on the streets, the, the, the lepers, the, the lowest, most outcast people on the planet. And she came and she showed them love by giving them dignity, by bathing them, by taking care of them, by feeding them, by just being the hands of Jesus. 
I say that because we tend to think of love, I think a lot of times, you know, kind of like short-term missionaries, don't we? Or we think of, we think of things kind of in book knowledge. Uh, but true love is, is, is demonstrated when someone enters into our world and seeks to, to come where we are. Someone who steps beyond the barriers, whether they're cultural, religious, or, or even our own pride or whatever, and they meet us right there. Does anybody remember um, a song? I think it was, came out in 1990. And for those of you that were born in 1995, you probably don't remember it. We've probably got a few people. I'm, I'm realizing I'm getting older. Uh, Bette Midler had this song, From a Distance. I'm not going to, that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> It was kind of this inspirational, adult, contemporary kind of song, but I'm sure it was no doubt inspirational to, to some people. But, but in this song, there's this refrain, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. I remember watching one of these kind of silly shows on VH1. I think it's the only kind of shows they have anymore where they just have the top 100 list of things and they just make stupid comments about it. And, and somebody was like, wow, that's kind of creepy. God is watching us from a distance. <laughs> what we find in John 1.14 is not God watching us from a distance. We find, as Eugene Peterson puts it in, in the message translation of the Bible, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. God loves us not from a distance, but by stepping into the place we live. I got to tell you, this verse, John 1, 14, the understanding of this has changed my life. I remember there was a time years ago where I was struggling with, with... accusations, people saying things about me that, I, that weren't true and betrayals, and, and I, I was just a mess. But I read what the author of Hebrews says, that, that, that we can, when we approach Jesus, we approach a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness because he's been everywhere we've been as a human being. You know that verse we read during worship this morning? Uh, what was it here? I got it somewhere. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus comes into our world not as Superman, not as somebody who just looks like a human being but really uses superpowers to do everything. Jesus actually comes into our world as a human, God incarnate. And so I began realizing... You know, if I face betrayal, if I face accusations, you know what? Jesus has faced that too. But he didn't face it like Superman. He faced it like me. He faced it like a human being. And so I can approach a God who knows what I'm going through, not just from the outside, but from within. I I tell you, you get a hold of that, that will change your life. God loves us enough to step into this world. I mean, imagine this. this. This just blows my mind that Jesus, before he ever does, I mean, think of the way that, think of what it tells us about what God thinks of us. He could have rescued us in any way, but his chosen way to do it was to be born in a manger, to grow up in some backwoods part of, of Israel, Galilee, 
and to spend 30 years just living a normal human existence, just a normal, just like eating, sleeping, working, experiencing everything that we face as a human before he does any miracle. What does that tell you? It tells you the same thing that it probably tells the people on the streets of Calcutta who Mother Teresa stepped into their world. It tells you, I love you enough to, 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 to get right where you are, to get down in the mud with you. I'm not going to consider my godness something to be grasped. I'm, I'm setting my, my claims to, to supernatural powers and all that aside. I'm entering into your story to love you, to show you that I care and I want to see you set free. Bible scholar N.T. Wright, uh, I I came across this quote. uh, He says, For too long we have read scriptures with 19th century eyes and 16th century questions. It's time to get back to reading with 1st century eyes and 21st century questions. What is N.T. Wright saying? He says the lens that we tend to approach the scripture, it's, it's been through this, these questions that were raised in the 1600s, uh, the, you know, the, the movements of the Enlightenment, modern rationalistic thinking. And, and so those questions have framed the whole thing. But we need to get back to looking at the Bible the way the original people would have heard it. We've talked about that quite a bit lately. So that's what I want us to do to kind of understand what's going on in, in the text. Now, one word I want to look at today that that we see in these verses is glory. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, when I hear the word glory as a modern American, I'm trying to think of any place outside of maybe the church where that word might be used. And about the only place I can think is sports, right? When I think of glory, I think of the Saints winning the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Man, that was glorious. You know, this parade, they're holding up the trophy. Sean Payton takes it home and sleeps with it that night. I don't know if that was glorious, but it's glory. It's the, the glory of victory. But you know, the way John is using the word glory in these passages is a way that the word glory had never been used before in the Bible up to that point. You know that term glory, it was used all throughout the Old Testament. The glory of God, uh, the the word glory in, in Hebrew means weight, splendor, glory. In, in, in Greek, which the New Testament was written in, the word is doxa. You might have heard the doxology before. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. In Greek, it means brightness, splendor, Radiance, But this was a word that when John uses it right here, it, it would have echoed through the minds of the first century hearers. They, they would have heard something quite different than we hear. We just think glory. Oh, that's glory of Jesus. All right, glory to God. But the word glory would have tied them into a story that had been going on ever since the Exodus. Let's look at what the glory of God actually meant in the Old Testament. Exodus twenty four seventeen. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Has anybody ever been around a mountain that's on fire before? I, yeah, I have. I was, I was in Colorado one time, and there was a forest fire. That's scary. You see a mountain on fire, you're not like driving up. Let's go look at that. Now imagine if that fire isn't a fire, but it's God. 
how much does that make you want to just kind of come near? <laughs> it's scary. It's terrifying. The children of Israel, when they were out in the wilderness and Moses was up there on Mount Sinai, it's smoke and fire and thunder. They wouldn't even touch the mountain. If somebody touched the mountain, they would kill them. Like, stay away. <laughs> stay away from that guy. Scary. That's the glory of God. Exodus forty thirty five. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. This was in the tabernacle in the wilderness because the cloud of glory had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When God's glory shows up, you, you don't do anything. You just you get out of the way. <laughs> you just shut down business. God's here. 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, this is in the, in the temple, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. When God shows up, you just stop. They couldn't do anything because God's presence, his heaviness, his splendor was all about it. Now, this is an interesting one you can find in Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses, up on the mountain talking to God, He says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near where you may stand on a rock, When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So here's Moses. Like in the Old Testament, you don't get any closer to God than Moses. I mean, Moses is up there in the midst of this cloud talking to God, and and he's he's alive. But when he says, can I see your glory, God says, Okay, well, let me stick you in this little opening in the rock. I'm going to cover your eyes. I'm going to pass by. And then when I get a little bit down the way, I'm going to take my hand off. And that's all you get to see. Because if you see any more than that, you're going to be dead. (laughs) You're going to fall on the ground dead. That's the glory of the Lord. And then when we come to the, the Christmas narrative, Luke 2, 9, that you got the shepherds out on the field tending their sheep. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I kind of, I, I didn't notice this aspect before, but I kind of thought, you know, the shepherds out in the field, you know, you see this, this little nativity scene, and you see these cute angels up in the clouds proclaiming, you know, glory to God in the highest. And I thought, wow, they must have been like, awesome, God's coming. But they were like, I just think I wet my pants. <laughs> Oh, no, they were terrified. The glory of God was there. They didn't know what to do. And John comes along and says something radical. We've seen the glory of God. And you know what it looks like? It looks like Jesus. 
The author of Hebrews actually says it this way. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Do you understand just a little bit why what John is saying here in in this first chapter is just radical? It's a twist, like I said last week, it's a twist in the plot that nobody saw coming. The glory of God is not separated now. God isn't speaking to us from a distance. Now God has entered into our world. He's broken down every barrier. He's stepped into our neighborhood. He's living in the place that we live as one of us. That was scandalous. What do you do with this kind of God? John says, when you've seen Jesus You've seen the glory of God. It's that same glory of God that was a fire on the mountain, that same glory of God that filled the temple, that, that, that same glory of God all throughout the end. Now it's embodied in human form in the person of Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, the only places other than that mountain where they saw the glory of God The only place that consistently had God's presence was either the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple. And in the Old Testament, they would allow the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. It was the innermost part of the temple once a year. And when the the priest would go into the the Holy of Holies, he would have to tie bells on him. You know, like we got a little, you may have a, a collar for your cat that has a little bell on it. You can hear your cat coming. That was the idea. Keep some bells on the priest so if you don't hear him moving, they would have also a, a rope tied around his leg. If you, if, if you hear the bell stop, you pull me out of there. Because it was a terrifying thing to go in the presence of the Lord. You didn't do it lightly. Jesus comes as the dwelling place of God on earth. The temple was the only place where heaven and earth intersected in the world. The tabernacle was the only place where heaven and earth met. Now we see heaven and earth meet in the person of Jesus. We behold his glory, the one of kind glory, like father, like son. Generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. And as amazing as this idea of the incarnation and the glory of God is, the good news doesn't start, stop there. <laughs> what we see in verse 12 is that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, if you were a first century Jew and, and you read these words, it's like, really? This is, this is amazing news. This is something no one saw coming. Now, your entrance into the kingdom of God is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your social standing. It's not based on your race. It's not based on where in the world you were born. It's based on the person of Jesus. Whoever believes in him can become a child of God. 
up to this point in history, the only people that could ever have a chance of getting around God were the high priests, and they got around God once a year, and hopefully they did it right or they'd die. Now John is saying, the doors are open, the king is here, and he's busting down every barrier to get to you. Actually, the ministry of Jesus, we're going to see it all throughout the gospel of John. You can see it all throughout all the gospels. Jesus is constantly breaking down the barriers. He's, he's removing the distance that separates people from him. And so Jesus would often be called a, a glutton or a wine-bibber. Why? Because he was always at parties. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd. He wasn't hanging out with the religious people and those who knew all the answers. He wasn't hanging out with the powerful. He was hanging out with normal people, with outcasts, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the ones who didn't think they had a chance to get in at all. And Jesus says, the kingdom is yours if you follow me. This is scandalous good news. But there's also a sober warning in this passage. He was in the world, verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In Jesus' day, during his earthly ministry, there was three main groups that that were kind of uh, trying to set the narrative of Israel uh, as as concerns God. There was the uh, Zealots, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. Now, what were the zealots? The zealots were revolutionaries. Actually, Jesus calls a zealot to be in his, you know, there was a guy named Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. He actually called a zealot to be in, the, in his inner circle. But the zealots, they were, they were like your fringe people, like let's overthrow the government. Let's wage war against Rome. Let's pick up arms. Let's have a revolutionary. A revolutionary. Let's have a revolution. <laughs> they were revolutionaries. They wanted a Messiah who would come and be like Rambo, just kick butt, you know, take, take the Romans out, overthrow the government. They wanted that. But what do you do with a Messiah that comes in saying, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. What do you do with a Messiah like that? You know what? The zealots missed Jesus. He came to them. They didn't receive him. There's this other group called the Essenes. Uh, back in February, I got to go to the, to the Holy Land, and we went to this place called Qumran that was where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, it's a barren wasteland. I mean, I grew up out in Midland, Texas, and that place is pretty barren, but this place makes Midland look like a, an oasis. I mean, it's, it's, it's desolate. It's the, the only water you got is the Dead Sea, and you can't drink it. You can see a lot of it, but you can't do anything with it. And, and this group called the Essenes, they, they were very much into purity, following rules, making up new rules. And, and they had all these rituals. They would always fast and pray and write things, and good thing that they wrote things because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Their understanding was if they would be pure enough, then it would cause the Messiah to come. But what was interesting is they, they, they had this very dualistic idea of God that, you know, it's just the, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. But the, their version of the kingdom of light, it was them, <laughs> that group. 
So they wanted the Messiah to come, but they were, they were thinking that when he comes, he's going to annihilate everybody else, and, and they are going to be the ones who are vindicated. Oh, okay. I heard voices. <laughs> Jesus comes and doesn't validate the Essenes. He doesn't say, pull away from society, go hide and make your own little club out here in the middle of nowhere and just be a group unto yourself. Jesus doesn't validate that at all. Actually, Jesus gets messy. He hangs out with the wrong kinds of people. He goes to the wrong places. He just breaks every rule. They can't see him as the Messiah. He came to them, but they did not see him. And then, of course, most famously in the New Testament, there's the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were kind of self-appointed group. They, they weren't really priests or anything. They're just kind of a club that, that sprung up uh, in the you know, years before Jesus came and did his earthly ministry. They, they were self-appointed kind of club of, of righteous people. But unlike the Essenes, they didn't want to kind of practice piety out in the middle of nowhere. They kind of liked practicing piety where everybody could see it. So, you know, that they could be seen for being generous. And, you know, if we're going to waste all this time following God, you know, we, we ought to get some props from the community for it, you know. And so, but they ended up forming kind of a country club, kind of a, a, a tight group that you had to look this way and talk this way to get in. And so Jesus comes breaking every barrier and they can't see Jesus as the Son of God right in front of them. They don't see the Messiah even when he's doing miracles right in front of them. They call his miracles of the devil. They call him the devil. Wow. That's scary. That, that Jesus could be in your midst and you're so attached to your own personal agenda that you can't see him. See, all the groups in that day that missed Jesus, they had their own agenda. Some of their agenda was political. They had uh, political aspirations, ways that they wanted things to go. I know we don't have that this day and age, but uh, try to imagine what that might be like. (laughs) They wanted political power. They wanted to rule. They wanted prominence. They wanted a Messiah who was going to validate their rule. But Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is not of this earth, a king that is greater. And you know, the only ones who consistently got that were the ones who had no agenda at all. The people who thought they were too far from God, the ones who thought, man, I don't pray enough. I don't know how to read the Bible, man. I'm just trying to work a job as a fisherman and not get crushed by the empire. I'm just trying to, you know, I I got nothing. It's those that Jesus, they respond to him. I think this is a sobering thing because I think even in this day and age, I, I, I often wonder, what if Jesus came to America and, and walked around and uh, would we recognize him? Would we recognize him today? Or are we too attached to a political ideology or a certain religious viewpoint? Are we too attached to our own pet agenda to recognize him? That ought to be sobering. Because keep in mind, the Essenes and the Pharisees at least, even a lot of the Zealots, these were not people who didn't take the Bible seriously. These were people who studied the Bible day and night. They actually moved away. Some of them moved away from society to study the Bible. That's how seriously they took it. But yet, they missed the very coming of God into the world. 
that ought to give us a little pause. It ought to cause us to look at some of the things we hold on to so much and just realize that apart from Jesus being the resurrected King, (laughs) the Messiah, we don't need to get too attached to any belief. We got to keep that central. The scandalous good news is that Jesus comes to those who are crazy enough to accept him. The scandalous good news is that Jesus makes this point over and over, not just with his teachings, but with his actual, the way he conducts ministry, that there's nothing, nothing that can separate you from God except your own choice. Jesus is dealing with every barrier. I'm sure in this this room this morning, there are people who, who feel like, man, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm good enough for God. You know, I mean, I've, I've tried reading the Bible. It just doesn't make sense to me. It seems like a crazy old book. Or I'm not very good at praying. Uh, I'd like to be, but I just don't know if God really wants anything to do with me. What we see in Jesus is that God wants everything to do with you. And it doesn't matter how much biblical knowledge or how good you are at praying. None of that matters. Jesus receives you with open arms. You might have suffered abuse in your childhood. And so when you hear the word father, when we talk about God being a father, it might be like, I can't mix those two words together. It's too painful. What I know of as a father is not a good thing. And, 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 and I can't see how God might accept me. You, you live trapped in shame. Jesus says, that's no barrier to me. I'll accept you just the way you are. I love just looking at the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has a way of of embracing sexually broken people, prostitutes, adulteresses, people who who, who messed up and think they're as far away from God, and, and, and Jesus embraces them. There's nothing you've been through that is too big for Jesus. There's nothing that you will go through that is too big for Jesus. You haven't been disqualified. You weren't born in the wrong place. You weren't born in the wrong class. Anyone who believes in Jesus gets to become a child of God. That's amazing, scandalous, revolutionary, crazy off the charts news. And if you're crazy enough to believe it, you get in. Who wants in? (laughs) And that's all you got to do. Respond like a child. (laughs) Why don't we stand? Lord, this morning we are so humbled by the way that you have loved us, God. Lord, you don't love us from a distance, God. You love us by getting into our world, meeting us in the place where we live. Lord, you embrace the unlovable, the the broken, the the ones who, Lord, maybe even hate you, God. Lord, you just, even our own objections are no match for your mercy and your love. It's too amazing, too astounding, too good to be true almost. But this morning, God, wherever we're at, God, Lord, whether we've been Christians for years, God, 
Lord, this morning we surrender our agendas to you, Lord. We surrender the, the pet agendas that, that maybe we've held again, up uh, uh, over you, Lord. We turn to you again today. And Lord, for those who may not have entered your story today, I pray, God, the, 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 that faith would rise up in their hearts to, to, be, to believe the good news, to step into your story, Lord, to enter what you're doing. We thank you, Lord, as that song we sang this morning. There is no one like you, risen Lord of all. Holy is your name, God. We thank you, Lord, that you are the glory of God and you've chosen to, to share of that glory that has existed from before eternity, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you've chosen to invite us to participate in that, to be a part, God. There's nothing we've done to deserve it, God, but we believe the good news. We receive you as our king today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless y'all.